If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 7. We heard the first 13 verses earlier, but I wanted to give you an idea of what's going on in this chapter. Uh, before we look at this section, though, it's important to keep several things in mind about the book of John and things we've been kind of tracing um, throughout our time together in this book. Um, and if you remember back from chapter one, John is trying to answer a specific question, the question of who is Jesus. And if you remember back in chapter one, he kind of lays out for us several claims about who Jesus is. Among those, Jesus is essentially one, and foundationally one, with the Father. He is God incarnate. He's the illuminator of God's truth. He is the one who brings to us the message and way of salvation, of being made right with God and being brought into fellowship with him. He makes a few other claims as well. Um, but then he says, and here's how you'll know that this is true. Here's how you can find out, test, to see if Jesus, who is, who, if Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, consider the witnesses. Consider the testimony of those around Jesus. And hear what they have to say. And in John chapter 7, a lot of people have a lot to say about Jesus. So John is much quicker than the other Gospels in some ways. We are moving very quickly through his earthly ministry and coming up very soon to his final few weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 4, uh, where Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well. And you're going to notice a connection right off the bat here in John 7 with his message in John 4. But he's in a completely different situation, surrounded by very different people. And everyone who hears Jesus that day in John 7 has an opinion of what he says. But before we look at what Jesus says, let me just set up what's going on for you. As we read earlier, Jesus is going to a festival, the Festival of Tabernacles, it says in some translations, the Festival of Booths and others, some say the Festival of Shelters. This is a specific and special festival that God has commanded his people way back even in Leviticus, the Jewish people, to celebrate every year. It's called the Festival of Sukkot. And it is one of three pilgrimage festivals or pilgrimage feasts, meaning that wherever you were when it was time to celebrate, if you were part of the, tri uh, the people of Israel, it was your job to go to the designated meeting spot and celebrate Sukkot. And by the time of Jesus' day, that designated meeting spot was the city of Jerusalem. So we saw that Jesus and his brothers are having a conversation about traveling to Jerusalem for the festival of Sukkot. And it's interesting that Jesus is hesitant because of the importance of this festival. And the brothers are anxious to get there, and Jesus isn't quite so anxious to get there. But why? What's the purpose of this festival. Why do they need to celebrate? God actually commanded for his people to celebrate many different feasts and holidays and festivals. But this one was to celebrate God bringing his people out of slavery and leading them 
to the promised land and being with them every step of the way. And so they were called at the festival of Sukkot every year, the Jewish people were called to remember and to celebrate and to praise the fact that no matter what was happening during that time of being brought out of slavery and into freedom, that God always provided for his people at every turn, every time they had a question, every time they came to Moses angry, saying, you've abandoned us and our God has abandoned us, God would come and meet the needs of his people. So you might remember back from last week that Jesus called himself the bread of life. And food came up quite a bit in the wanderings of the Israelites back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And often and always, God would bring food to his people And so Jesus connected himself to that back then. But he's going to connect himself to something else during this festival that the people are remembering in the history of Israel that is going to cause a massive stir in the city of Jerusalem. So uh, that is the festival of Sukkot. And we're going to see what Jesus says here. But by the way, uh, it's celebrated for seven days. Just a couple of other facts here. Celebrated for seven days. And basically it was kind of like camping. Uh, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would go out onto your porch or your yard and you would make a tent. And they were, uh, they were made out of anything and everything. And they were decorated and it was a time of um, celebration and, and things that people would look forward to. But you would come and you would live for a week in a tent to remember what it was like for the people to not have a permanent home, but to be relying on God. There was also special sacrifices, special feasts, and worship services going on. The priests would do special things. It was a time where Jerusalem would have been packed with people and a time of great rejoicing and anticipation for what God was going to do for his people. So that's the background. Now I want you to look at verse 37, go towards the end of the chapter. And we're going to work our way back from the climax and find out what Jesus is saying and why he's saying the specific Thing about himself. And then we're going to find out whether or not we can believe that that's true. In verse 37, it says this of John 7. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John gives us a little commentary, even explaining what's going on here and what Jesus is saying, just in case it wasn't clear. For the people of that day at that festival, all those around who could hear Jesus speaking, the point would have been very clear. And as we're going to see, there are many different responses to it. But it's interesting, and what you and I need to realize is that not only in the wilderness did God have to provide food for his people in dramatic ways, he also provided another basic life necessity, maybe even more important than the bread or the quail, was the water. So in Numbers 20, you'll remember this story, the people are moving on to a new uh, a new area in their pilgrimage, in their wanderings, in the wilderness. They've come to a new place, and they have no water. 
And they go, and if you read Numbers 20, you'll see this. They go angrily to Moses and to Aaron, and they say, why have you brought us here to die? You don't care about us. There's no water. In fact, we would rather have stayed in slavery in Egypt and died there. It would have been so much better. And so Moses and Aaron, who've heard this many times, they go to the Lord and they say, Lord, we need help. Can you give us water? And God says, I'll give you water. He says, Moses, I want you to go back to the people, go to this rock, and I want you to command water to come forth from the rock. Speak life-giving water to come from the rock, and anyone who drinks it will be satisfied. And so you know the rest of the story, of course. Moses goes, and what does he do? He is so upset and annoyed by these people, and you just have to read what he says and to get that, to get that emotion. He's like, he says to them, you stupid people who never listen and don't care, I'll give you the water you want. Here's what God told me to do. And then he takes his stick and he hits the rock twice. And water comes out, and it says water comes out abundantly, and the people are given a drink, and they have what they need. They are revived and for the moment, they're happy again. But what's interesting about that story, and what's important to know for the context of what's going on here, and what Jesus is saying, is that that day something changed for Moses. And God said to him later, he said, Moses, you did not trust me. You took matters into your own hands. I told you to speak, and I would give. But out of your anger, you struck the rock. And so Moses, you do not get to enter the promised land for this. Now, what's the big deal about that? And what's that have to do with Jesus? The thing about Moses is that he was an archetype. And he even says it. He says, one day there's someone coming like me who God is going to raise up and anoint and to lead the people to salvation. And so ever since Moses, and maybe even before you could argue, the people of God have been looking for that one to come that one who would be as great as Moses, as faithful as Moses, but who would never fail like Moses did. And so all of this imagery and this um, knowledge of the past is wrapped up in this scene that day at the festival of Sukkot, that last day when Jesus stands up and says to the people of God, I will give you water but not just the water like Moses gave you. I'll give you water that will satisfy your soul. Remember back to the woman at the well. What did he say to her? I'll give you a drink that will mean you never have to drink again. I'll give you a drink that will revive your heart. I'll give you a drink that will bring God's life into your dead soul. And it won't just satisfy you for five minutes, for an hour, for a week, for a month, for a year. It will satisfy you for eternity. I'll give you that drink. And he stands up here when the people are remembering their time in the wilderness and their great need for water. And he says, like Moses, I will give you a drink. If you come to me and if you believe in me, and that means put your trust in me. And that means that you, do, you treat me the way you would treat Yahweh. The way you would treat God, your God, is the way you should treat me. And so this statement is shocking. A lot of Jesus' Jesus statements are shocking. But this statement is shocking to the people. 
And we're going to look at the different responses because there are very, they're varied um, and they run the gamut. But Jesus is making a bold claim about himself that he essentially is the water of life. And what that means is this. He is the connection to God that will revive the soul, that will satisfy the heart, and that will empower others to speak life and truth to those who are dried up and dead inside. If you trust in me, you will receive the drink, a drink of the water of life. And then John tells us about the Holy Spirit and how, you know, he's, he's pointing to later when Jesus goes away and Jesus says, I'm sending someone to be the helper, and that is the Holy Spirit. So that, and maybe he was, for, maybe he was thinking ahead here, in case you're in a time when Jesus isn't walking around, you still have connection to the drink that you need for eternity, this water of life. So anyway, Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the water. I'm what you need. Come and trust in me. And you'll be filled and satisfied for eternity. And out of your heart will flow this river of life. And like I said, this divides the people. So what I want to do is I want to go back and look back at the beginning. And there's kind of three, John gives us three groups of people that react to Jesus's message. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, we get the first group, and that's Jesus's brothers. In verse 3, it says this, his brothers therefore said to Jesus, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself, excuse me, to the world. And then John gives us the commentary, right? The true heart behind this message. Just in case you were thinking these brothers were trying to be nice and saying, hey, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem, let's go to the festival of Sukkot, and let's do everything you've been doing now so that people know who you are. And just in case you were thinking that these brothers actually cared about him, then John tells us this. Even his brothers did not believe in him. They're not trying to make his ministry greater, they're, try, they're essentially saying to their brother, they're saying, Jesus, if you're who you say you are, then prove it. Prove that you're the Messiah. Prove that you can give this drink. If you have siblings, you can probably picture what this would be like growing up every day with one of them coming to you and saying, by the way, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to save Israel and the world, just so you know, believe in me, all this stuff. And then he's probably really nice to boot, so then you're like, oh, great. My brother's crazy, and he's nice, so that makes me feel even worse. But these guys did not believe in him. And they're saying, if you are really who you say you are, then quit hiding Quit staying in secret. Quit trying to run from the religious leaders who said they wanted to kill you. Go and prove who you are. And Jesus talks to them and he says, well, listen, you know, it's not my time. And it doesn't mean it's not his time to heal people or to save people or to uh, expand the kingdom. It's not his time to cheat with death. It's not his time yet to be taken. And you're going to see if you read through John 7, which we're not going to look at every single verse, but... If you take the time to read through John 7, you'll see over and over again that eventually, as he does go to the festival, there are many times 
that people want to take him to kill him. And it says they couldn't get to him because it's not his time. But Jesus says, I'm not going. And so they leave. And then Jesus later goes himself in secret. And then that's how he gets to the festival that day. But you see this first group, his own family, his own brothers, they don't believe in Jesus because they're suspicious of his motivations. In verse 4, it says, no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. So Jesus, if you keep telling people you want everyone to believe in you, why don't you actually go make yourself known? See, Jesus, you're not who you say you are. And so that's the first group of people who find Jesus' words offensive and take no stock in what he says. The second group is called the Jews or the people. And they show up several times throughout John chapter 7. In verse 15, in verse 20, in verse 25 through 27, and then in verse 35. And they all have things to say about what Jesus says, about who Jesus claims to be. Uh, If you look at verse 15, it says this, and the Jews, so Jesus is gone, and he went about midway, and then about midway through that week, he decided to go start teaching. And he's trying to keep things on the down low. He's not trying to stir up anything yet uh, because he's not to the climax of the festival, but he wants to go teach. And the Jews marveled in verse 15 saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Essentially, they're saying Jesus has never been to any important rabbinic school. How can he actually teach and know what God would have us do? How can he teach the scriptures this way? He's had no training. And so I want to point this out, not because it's some mind-blowing statement, but because the people are already predetermined in ways to not believe Christ when he speaks to them. You're going to notice they just are trying to find every excuse to not believe in Jesus. So he has no education. Why would I listen to him? And then in verse 20, it says this, the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. You see, Jesus is telling them, listen, the reason I'm not shouting everything from the rooftops is because I've been threatened with my life. The religious leaders are out to kill me. If you remember two chapters ago in uh, chapter five, when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, the, the Pharisees said, we want to kill Jesus. And so that was the last time he was in Jerusalem, and he hasn't been back since. But the people are like, listen, we don't know what you're talking about. Religious leaders were working in secret. They said, we don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. No one's trying to kill you. They don't want to believe what Jesus has to say. They're not convinced. Then in verse 25, they come back, and they're talking to Jesus again. It says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? So now somehow they know that The Pharisees want to kill Jesus. But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Then they start to wonder, well, no one's stopping him from teaching. So do the religious leaders actually think that he is the Messiah? And then they say this. I point this out because I want you to see the progression of their hearts. Then they say this. This cannot be the Messiah We know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Everyone knew Jesus was from Galilee. That comes up over and over again, and here you're going to see that. And there was this weird thought, and I don't know why, because God was clear, that 
they would know where the Messiah comes from. But the people thought that the, that the Messiah, that the Christ who was to come, would mysteriously show up and no one would know his background. No one would know where he came from. And so the hearts of the people were already predetermined to, to not believe in Jesus because they had believed a false narrative. And so this is the people, these are the hearts of the people that Jesus gets up to talk to at the very end of the festival and proclaim that he is the water of life. He is the connection to God that they need. And you can see what he's working with and what the people are already thinking about him. In verse 35, the Jews say this, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Jesus just said to them, I'm gonna go to a place and you can't find me. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. How could that be? If Jesus goes anywhere, everyone's on the lookout for him. How could he hide from us? You see, they're also confused. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, and they don't understand his message. And so when he gets up to say something as dramatic and offensive as he does in verse 37, the people have issue with Jesus. And that, so that's the second group, and finally the third group of people that John points out for us in, in this chapter. People who cannot stand Jesus' words are the religious leaders. And in verses 47 through 52, we, get, we find out exactly what they think about what Jesus said. Then the Pharisees answered and said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Basically, they're saying, if you actually know your scriptures, if you know your Bible, you'll believe, like us, that Jesus is a liar. Jesus is a blasphemer. Jesus is the furthest thing from the Messiah, the furthest thing from the next Moses. He's the furthest thing from the water of life. Are you also deceived? Have any of us believed in him? And I hope what you see there is that they're motivated, their hearts are motivated by hatred. By the fact that they cannot stand what Jesus says and does. And how every time they confront him about it, he throws it back at them and says, what I'm doing is what you should be doing. And instead, you've built your whole life, your whole school, your whole way of operating, your whole religion under God. You've built it in a way that displeases God and hates the neighbor. And they cannot stand him. And they're using scripture to back them, their beliefs up as well. And they'd, they'd point to the Bible and say, there's no way Jesus is who he says he is. So these are the three different reactions, very similar but different reactions. They range from confusion to just pure disbelief because of who Jesus is to uh, pure, unadulterated hatred for him. And so the question then is, because remember what John's trying to do, he's trying to tell us who Jesus is and he's trying to give us good reason to believe. So what gives Jesus the authority to say that he is the water? To say that he can give this drink? What gives him that right? How can he make so bold a claim? Well, back in verse 16 through 18, 
There's this little snippet of teaching that we get. <clears throat> and there are three reasons, excuse me, <coughs> three reasons Jesus gives for why he can say what he says and why you should believe it. <clears throat> In verse 16, he says this. <coughs> excuse me. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it's, he, it's his who sent me. Remember what the brother said to him? If you actually want to be known, why aren't you going out and making a name for yourself? And Jesus says, listen, everyone's assuming that I'm out for my own reputation. But if you look at what I say and what I do, you'll notice that it's never about me. It's about the one who sent me. <clears throat> my doctrine is not mine, but it is he who sent me. How do I know these things? How can I teach the way I teach? How do I have authority to say what I do? It's because I'm not saying my own words. I'm not giving you my interpretation. I'm not giving you my own commentary and thoughts on the scripture. I'm telling you what God said. And if you do any sort of study, you'll notice oftentimes when the Pharisees or the religious leaders come at Jesus with a question, he'll clarify, their, <laughs> he'll clarify what they meant and he'll tell them exactly what the scripture says and how they missed it. That happens over and over and over again in all the gospel accounts. And so Jesus says, listen, if you want to believe in me, here's why you can. I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking the words of God himself. And then he says this in verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God, <coughs> excuse me, or whether I speak on my own authority. What he's saying here is, listen, test my words. You want to know what I'm saying is true? Then you have to come at this with an open mind and an open heart. If you're already determined in your heart to not believe me, then nothing I say or do will prove to you who I am. And you and I have the, uh, the gift of, of hindsight, and we see that, right? How many Pharisees does it say came to Christ because of the things that he did. It only mentions a very, very few. And his greatest enemies were always the religious leaders. And they were the ones who said in their heart, I'm never going to even give Jesus's words or teachings a chance. I'm not going to explore them for myself because they are already contrary to what I know about scripture. But Jesus says, if you want to know what I'm saying is true, then you have to seek it out for yourself. And he's not making that claim just to deflect or to somehow <clears throat> not have to get into any other proof because you and I might sit there and think, well, that's not that strong of an argument, right? But here's the thing. He knows that as soon as you start honestly searching for God in his word, you'll know that Jesus is true. He says, I don't speak on my own authority. I speak on God's authority. And then he says this. This is his final argument to the people in Jerusalem that day. He who speaks from, him, uh, from himself, this is verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. 
And then he says this, test my motivation. What is my message always about? Am I here for me? I mean, he told his brothers, I'm not going to go do what you want me to do because I'm not like every other teacher. I'm not here to make myself known. I'm not here to prove that I'm, more, I'm holier or um, uh, more moral than anyone else or any other teachers, right? And that's what he's kind of referencing in those days. The holiest teachers wanted you to know how holy they were. And Jesus is not saying, he's saying, I'm not concerned about that. You're going to know. You're going to know by watching me. You're going to know by walking with me. You're going to know by listening to me. But you're going to know the difference because I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me. And there's nobody in that, in that, uh, in that city that day that would ever say um, that there was unrighteousness in God. And so Jesus says, you and I know God has no unrighteousness in him. And I am speaking to give him the glory. My message is all about God and understanding what God truly says and giving us a connection to God, not based on our works, not based on our best efforts, not based on what we can buy or what we can sell or how many blessings we have, but simply based in the free gift of his messenger, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so when he gets up to say, I am the water of life, he has full authority to say that. And though the people are mixed on his message, John wants you to walk away from this chapter knowing that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, the connection to God, and the bringer of God's life to your soul that you need. So to go, just to kind of close with the metaphor of the water and the parched ground, or the parched people. As Jesus claims equality with God, the responses range from confusion to pure hatred. And what we get in John 7 is the idea, and hopefully you see this, or as you read through it yourself, you'll see this, that the hearts that day were dry. That many in Jerusalem that day were dry as the desert that the Israelites had wandered around back in Exodus, they were in need of the life-giving water of heaven. And so I think the greatest proof in this chapter of who Jesus is that he says he is, not, not even the three reasons he gives, but the greatest proof is whether or not this water of life actually has any effect. And that day, it certainly did. Jesus proves himself true as the water of life that he offers begins to trickle down and revive thirsty hearts. I want to point out a couple of verses real quick that are sprinkled throughout this chapter. So you can see, like John says, ask the witnesses, ask those who know who Jesus is, whether or not he's true. And John shares some of those with us in this chapter. Look at verse 31. This is in the midst of people not knowing how to handle Jesus, not knowing whether or not he is who he says he is, and for the most part, people rejecting him. But in verse 31, it says this, many people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? 
these people understand. They're like, there, there's nothing more that the actual Messiah could do than what this Jesus from Galilee is doing. And so he must be the Christ. But then it goes on in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. And in verse 41, it says, others said, this is the Christ. When Jesus stands up at the climax and proclaims himself the Messiah, the bringer of the waters of heaven, people believe in him. I have the highlights. So the people who disbelieve in him, there's a lot more highlighting in this chapter. But that's okay because there are several lines of people who believe, proving that the water of life from Jesus was reviving hearts. Look at verse 46. Now, this doesn't say that that these people believed, but they were struck by Jesus' words enough to begin to get the water to their dry hearts. The officers, these are the people who the Pharisees sent to get Jesus and to arrest him and to kill him, hopefully. The officers came back and said, we didn't get him. And they said, why? And they said, no man ever spoke like this man. His words had an impact on our actions and our hearts that day. I don't know if they ever went on to believe. It doesn't say. But the power of heaven, the water of life that's coming through Christ is so powerful that even those who sought to kill him, whose only job was to go get him and kill him, were stopped in their tracks. And then finally, in verse 50, you'll recognize this name, Nicodemus, from way back in the beginning of the book. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, as the Pharisees were trying to accuse and were trying to um, figure out a way to get Jesus and were humiliating those who would ever believe in him, Nicodemus comes to them and says this, doesn't our law judge a man before it hears him? Uh, Oh, sorry, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So he's kind of channeling his inner Jesus right here, his connection to God, his changed heart, and he says, listen, we need to actually keep the laws that we say everyone has to keep. We need to keep the laws that God has given us. And so what we need to do before we judge this man is we need to hear him and we need to know, and that means understand and see and test what he's doing, just like Jesus was calling the people to do back in verse 16. And so Nicodemus' heart has been revived by the water of life. And so amidst all the confusion and amidst all the hatred and amidst all the rejection of Jesus, after his climactic statement in verse 37 of being that water that the people need, there are those who are changed by it that day. And I think John gives us that information and points those things out. He doesn't make them the primary focus, but I think he sprinkles that through here to show that Jesus is who he says he is. Because after all, it was John back in chapter one who said, listen to the witnesses. Listen to those who speak of Jesus and who know who he is and take their word for it. Not just mine, but those who has been changed and revived by the truth of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And Father, thank you that the connection to you through Jesus is still available. It never goes away. Father, the offer of the water of life to revive our hearts, to wash away our sin, 
to quench our thirst, to meet all of our desires. Father, it's still available. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here this morning who has not had a drink from the water that Jesus gives, that you would move their hearts to do so, that you would flood their life with your truth, and that you would bring them into relationship with you. And Father, I pray for those of us or anyone here who has had that initial drink, that they would never stop going back to the river. It doesn't stop flowing. And we're invited to come back and to dig our roots deep into that river and to continually drink from it and be revived moment by moment and be refreshed day by day. So Father, I pray we would never forget to drink deeply of the truth of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.